You are listening to the People and Place podcast by WSP Australia. Over the next few weeks, we'll be talking with WSP experts, clients and leading industry figures to dive into people and place. What does place and placemaking mean? And what are some of the challenges and opportunities we face in creating places for people to live, work, learn, play and thrive in? Here's your host, Hannah Blayaveen. In this two-part episode, we're exploring Indigenous connection to place. How can we interpret and give life to Indigenous significance, culture and stories in our design for places and infrastructure? How does this help us create better places for everyone? And how does this help us achieve our sustainability goals? I'm Hannah Blavine, and today I'm joined by three fantastic guests. Firstly, Alsa Walsh, a proud Indigenous woman of the Yagara, Ladul and Kalali countries. Alsa is an incredible Aboriginal artist who helped us bring up new Brisbane office to life with her paintings. We also have Michael Romick, Technical Executive in WSP's Indigenous Specialist Services team. Michael is also a researcher and professional tutor at the University of Technology, Sydney's Jambana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research. And last but not least, Ben Gibbs, an associate in our sustainability team, whose work helps many different organisations to achieve their sustainability goals. Welcome, everyone. Before we get into the questions, I'd like to take this moment to acknowledge the countries on which we gather to record and listen to this podcast. We pay our respects to all the traditional custodians of this land, including the Gadigal and Turbal peoples, for it is in their country that we are recording this podcast episode. We extend our respects to Elders past, present and future, and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples tuning in today. My first question is for Michael. Could you please tell us what is Indigenous knowledge? That's a very broad term, but it's a good place to start because I think a lot of people would have a different interpretation of what it is. As an architect and looking at it from an Indigenous lens as well, Indigenous knowledge revolves around understanding place and understanding country and understanding what makes the distinctions between place and country. That's kind of what Indigenous knowledge is built around is intrinsic and deep knowledge of local places and local systems, broad systems as well, but it goes throughout all of those scales. Alsa, what does Indigenous knowledge mean to you? I think it's changed over time. With our ancestors, it was all about the relationship with the land, with the animals, with the weather patterns, with trading. And as you've seen with colonisation, things have changed, obviously. A lot more of us young ones now want to reconnect with bush tucker Language is, is a big one and it's quite hard because a lot of it is lost because our elders have died off and unfortunately haven't passed down the knowledge out of fear or out of governance. But Indigenous knowledge solely means connection to our history and passing that down. Later in the show, we'll be talking more in depth about our Brisbane office, but first I think we should give everyone a bit of context around it and why we were so desperate to have Elsa join us today. Ben, could you give us a little intro about the project? So the project is 900 Ann Street, which is the building where WSP's Brisbane office has relocated to. We occupy four levels in the building. It's a co-location of three existing WSP offices around Brisbane, around 600 staff coming together. And I guess as part of the process, you know, it's not very common that you have the opportunity to design a new office space uh, essentially from scratch. There was a lot of thought that went into 
what outcomes we wanted to get out of this and what we wanted to focus on. And our key part of that was creating inclusive spaces and sustainable spaces and health and wellbeing, but critically, a visible connection to Brisbane's Aboriginal heritage. Michael, could you share a little bit about the Aboriginal-led co-design methodology that you adopted on this project and tend to adopt on a lot of projects? The Aboriginal co-led design methodology is based from the academic environment. So I'm completing a PhD in the University of Technology in Sydney in architecture. And some of the methodologies around my research has been Indigenous methodologies So yarning and qualitative-based research and understanding data from that perspective. From that idea, there's a lot of great academics that we lean upon. Linda Tuai-Smith is a brilliant Maori academic who leads the way around some of these ideas around Indigenous autonomy and ensuring that Indigenous outcomes are equitable and her publishings are quite useful. And there's others as well. So from an Australian perspective, the Indigenous Design Charter, and that's done in Victoria, Deakin University, Jeffrey Greenaway, and a few others there. They've come up with 10 main points around best practice approach to Indigenous design. We've distilled it into three core principles. Indigenous-led, so any Indigenous content should be led by Indigenous people. The next one is community involvement. Local Aboriginal people should be involved in these projects as much as possible, particularly when it comes to design. A lot of community and mob are artists in their own right, and it's a really fantastic way to engage them. And the third one is how we do it, the appropriate use of Indigenous design. That's the one that's most interesting for me because it's always in flux. It's always changing. You know, 10 years ago, we would do Indigenous design in a particular way. However, today it's shifted and it's much more contemporary and still still very much leaning on tradition and patterns and, and local ideas, but using new materials and viewpoints on the world. Alsa, you worked extensively to co-design our Brisbane office. What was that experience like? Do you have any advice to pass on to other Indigenous artists who might be thinking about getting involved in similar projects? I think what was a positive thing is that my first contact was with another Aboriginal person. I think that was really a barrier that was broken down. So when Michael contacted me, I had a yarn with him on the phone. It was like, okay, cool. Because sometimes when I get contact from non-Indigenous people, it's very corporate. It's very structured talk. I don't yarn like that. So it's good that the first communication is from an Indigenous person. And it's not meant to disrespect non-Indigenous people. It's just easier for us to yarn with them and understand lingo a bit. If there's other Indigenous artists out there, my biggest advice for both them and corporations is know their value. We are 3% of the population. We don't get paid as much as we should. So when a company does recognise that pay and does it, you're empowering that person in their business When I got this gig, I was really nervous on what to quote on. For me, I'm like, if I'm going to pitch too high, they're going to reject me. But if I pitch too low, it's going to like take advantage of me because I do put a lot of work into it. For other artists, I would suggest talking to somebody who's been in the industry for a long time, have a mentor about it. If not, then call me. And also having an Indigenous person in the corporation like Michael be there with the negotiation and be there on the side and have that advocate who works for the company. And I think Michael's done a great job at that. He was friendly to me. He treated me with the respect that I needed. It's really important that other artists who work with companies know their value 
and stick to their value. And it's important for non-Indigenous companies to not only trust the artist, but communicate with them. This is what we'd like. We hope that you can incorporate it and pay them what they do. Last but not least, what I can really sum it up to companies out there is do not buy fake art. There's a huge fake art movement at the moment and we're trying to put a stop to that. It's important that you got an authentic person to do the artwork. Could you please explain to us your process going into the project? Were there certain elements of the space that influenced the art that you created? In the initial contact I had with you guys, I first wanted to know what your policies were around how you deal with your employees because I wanted to know that if you guys were a good company. Michael gave me a rundown of what the offices will look like, where's the kitchen and stuff like that. So I went into it with four ideas, four paintings, representing not just Brisbane, but it's good to incorporate some other places around the actual side of Brisbane. That's when I decided to do four different levels and each painting, the colours slided into the next level. So they're all connected and each one has their own different meaning. On the third floor, I wanted a yarning circle, everyone to come together and eat because I don't know if you know us very well, but us blackfellas, we love to eat. Things like that I try and incorporate into the actual WSP ethics and values, what's on the floor, plus dealing with my culture and what's on the outside. Can we maybe talk about that yarning circle in our gathering cafe space and what that means and why it's important? For my grandfather's country, whenever they had yarning circles, it would have to be a certain distance away from water, borer rings, other significant Mm. areas. The yarning circles would consist of you enter one end and you exit the other end because you're meant to come in with your issues, talk about that and leave in a different spiritual light to the other side. The elder or the leader always talks first, which is usually mixed gender. So if it's mixed gender, usually the male elder will talk first. The females in my family, the yarning circles were a bit different. They mainly happened in water. So you would stand around in a circle, topless, talking about your issues and the elders playing with your hair or putting mud through your hair and then you would exit on the other side of the bank. There's different types of yarning circles that a lot of people don't know, but that's the typical one where you'll have a circle of rocks, you have ceremony, but sometimes the females do it a bit different. I think from a communication point of view as well, it's been interesting to see the yarning circle work in a typical office. There is nowhere to hide when you're in the middle of the yarning circle. You have 360-degree coverage of people who you're talking to. You need to be highly aware of what you're talking about and make a really engaging experience. Presenting in the yarning circle is a great way to work out problems and issues quickly and to engage everyone. My experience so far has been, yeah, those conversations are much more engaging and often actually less time-consuming because people get to the point. That was part one on our discussion around the importance of Indigenous connection to place and how we can give life to this through our planning and design of places and infrastructure. Join us next week for part two, where we discuss meeting sustainable design objectives, using Indigenous design to enrich online places, and the positive impact of Indigenous design for future generations. We hope you enjoyed this episode of People in Place. To hear more, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. You can also find us on LinkedIn and Facebook at WSP in Australia and on Instagram and Twitter at WSP underscore Australia.